0: Welcome to Failing Forward. Today, I'm with Rahul Chandran, who's talking about what he terms the catastrophic failure of innovation in the humanitarian sector. Rahul, can you please introduce yourself for the
1: audience? Hi, my name is Rahul Chandran. I'm currently the Chief Executive Officer of Care Impact Partners, Uh, but I'm talking to you today because of my experience as the Executive Director of the Global Alliance for Humanitarian Innovation and then at the Policy and Innovation section at OCHA before that and a few other uh, past lives in the private sector and technology.
0: And why is it important for us to talk about failure? Why have you joined us today?
1: We need to make way for the new. And if we don't talk about failure, we don't recognize failure, and we don't shut things down that we should, and we don't create the space for better, smarter, uh, more effective ideas to flourish.
0: And what is the failure you're going to be talking about today?
1: So I think I'm actually gonna try and talk about the failure of innovation at the level of the humanitarian system.
0: Give us a little bit of the description about the context that failure is happening in.
1: I ran the Global Alliance for Humanitarian Innovation um, for the two and a bit years of its existence, which was an outcome from the World Humanitarian Summit. And that I think stemmed from a recognition of continually increasing demand in the humanitarian system, a result of climate change, a result of global conflict, uh, recognition that the world is facing new sets of risks, uh, technological and biological. We did a lot of work on pandemics, which obviously now rings home, but at that time was considered a forward-looking thought about a new set of challenges. because there was a sense at the time also that the the geopolitical environment, the way that people engaged with institutions, or what trust was, was all starting to shift. And that we just needed new ways to reach people, to deliver aid, to deliver impact. Uh, the demands were great. The institutions weren't going to make it. So what could we do differently? And what could we do better?
0: So on paper, that all sounds great. It sounds obvious and like okay. something we really should be investing in. What went wrong?
1: It's difficult to say. So I'll I'll start with the problem, which is that when we talk about aid in the human or innovation in the humanitarian system, um, part of that sentence is the humanitarian system as a phrase. And that isn't really a thing. It's a mixed bag of actors uh, with competing roles, and this is going to get me in trouble, uh, that often claim to deliver on humanitarian principles but actually hide behind them as a shield so how do you innovate in a for a system that is actually structurally incoherent right it it doesn't finance itself it generates revenue um, because it asks people for money it's not financed as a system it's financed as a series of sort of individual actors no one leads the system or manages the system right there's no single actor or entity or even collection of entities actually exercising strategic leadership or governance across the system. And the way that the system is financed is a function of sort of social guilt and parliamentary accountability to citizens for tax dollars and domestic politics. It's not actually a need-based financing system. So we talk about improving and innovating in the humanitarian system, but it's it's really a, a loose collation of actors who do some stuff sometimes together, Um, and not always on an open basis. And that isn't always honest with itself uh, about the fact that we are not able to fund or act directly on the basis of need. And that is also, I think, subservient to what I'll call the multilateral conflict management architecture in that when conflict drives humanitarian need, which is why we're trying to innovate to meet that need, we're not in charge of stopping the conditions that create the need. So what do you do in that whole mixed bag? I'll layer on that as we've all become, I think, more aware over the last 24 to 48 months. The effects and the pernicious effects of structural racism and colonialism in the design of the system, in the international architecture, in all of that, undermine its real ability to deliver for the communities who are occasionally or often in need of help. So that's a whole bag of sort of structural politics of the humanitarian system, which sounds very detached from the question of innovation, but you can't innovate unless you understand what you're innovating for. Um, You can't create difference without the preposition from, that's an Edward Said quote, Um, but as applicable to innovation that's supposed to produce impact for people and that is supposed to differentiate us from what was happening to deliver something new and against that it was a real struggle to get the kind of collective action that would de-risk impact and scale at scale and let me be fairly explicit it is pretty easy in the international system right now to start up an innovation you can get twenty thousand dollars you can get fifty thousand dollars you can get 100,000 euros, whatever it is. That first round of Silicon Valley, like here's a little token investment, go and pilot, go and MVP, go and test, easy to get. What is absent though, is the structured mezzanine funding, to use a, a venture capital term, that allows you to actually grow and test an innovation across a different set of geographies, across a different set of contexts and really understand both what is the innovation and what are its pathways to scale. Um, the pathways to scale is important because the one of the great failings that our industry has done is we've tried to import the idea of innovation sort of from Silicon Valley, which is uh, I spent the early part of my career working in technology. And instead of taking the idea of patient capital that allows ideas to pivot and people to learn and really figure out um, where they have scale and what we've taken is here's an idea it must grow it has to grow by magic and if it fails well we don't really accept that there is failure in the international system right we never really talk about failure which is why this podcast is important and why we don't learn from from struggles that are an you know ineffable part of any attempt to do things differently so let me go back to that mezzanine funding question, right? You're you're looking for, you've got a smart idea, you've sort of, let's say you've built an app, you figured out a new way to do something in a particular country and it's kind of working. And as you know, humanitarians do that all the time. Aid workers often are innovating and being creative at the point of delivery. But you put a little package on it and, and a nice little bow, now you want to take it to other places. And that's really hard because everyone is very afraid of the fact that when you take something across a border to a different context it doesn't work in the same way right that's true of let's say educational technology it's true of the way that cultures respond to training on gender-based violence it's the way it's true in the way that communities organize it's true in the way that Access to a mobile phone is different for women and the way in which it's used is different in different communities. So for sort of all digital technologies, for educational interventions, for any kind of intervention, there is a challenge when you take it from one place to another. There's also a challenge, which is that the pathways for really growing these opportunities are often outside the innovations themselves. So you can have a really smart idea while you're working in a corner of a refugee camp. If you want to scale that idea globally, that idea has to be accepted by UNHCR, incorporated into the camp management manual, addressed in global procurement standards. And the pathway to scale is not the idea itself succeeding. It's actually changing the system. And as we've talked about, it's not really a system and making it open to the idea of doing things differently at scale. In order to do that, you need to persuade the people who are the gatekeepers who hold the keys to the kingdom to want to change, but that's a huge risk. And that takes me back to that first sentence. How do you de-risk pathways to scale? How do you make it possible for the UN agencies who are sort of norm custodians and standard setters uh, and for donors to experiment in taking an idea wherever it's come from and however it has emerged, and then testing it in a bunch of different places and letting it fail in many of those places, because that's what ideas do, in order to understand what might succeed and how that might succeed. And to do that, you need a bunch of people pooling their resources and pooling their money and taking collective action. And that's pretty easy if you have a system And it's pretty hard if you have, uh, as I sort of said earlier, a non-system without any leadership, um, without any governance. And without a particular appetite for that, because as I said, it's not financed as a system. Donors pour money into organizations against specific targets. They're not actually saying, here humanitarians improve the quality of global humanitarian response. And we're just providing the funding for this, but we want you to actually control and make decisions and execute and fail and learn. That kind of uh, empowerment of the system to really scale innovation hasn't happened.
0: You've talked a lot about de-risking the innovation space and the scale space. How do you do that? There is a huge amount of risk aversion and many organizations feel like they don't have the space to fail. What are some ways to reduce that risk?
1: I don't think we can pretend that risk aversion is not genuine, right? Donors are accountable to their parliaments. Their parliaments and their citizens don't want them to spend their money experimenting. So that's a real constraint that we have to acknowledge and find ways to work with rather than work around. And I think the only way that I have seen that you can really work with that is to get people around the table and say, all right, we're all going to pool our resources against an outcome. And all the efforts that are trying to get us to that outcome are, are collective efforts, so there, there's, there's a huge and real challenge in there. If you don't do the work, you don't get the outcomes. And I don't know that it is anyone's job to do the work. And that was the, you know, the beautiful opportunity that attracted, I think the great team that I was privileged to lead at Gahi, but also the reasons for its eventual failure it was maybe an idea a little bit ahead of its time Uh, maybe it wasn't the right idea right maybe i'm wrong about collective action and actually and this is again why we need to talk about failure because someone might be able to figure out what's a better way to de-risk
0: and when you think about risk tolerance and risk appetite one of the things i see a lot is pulling ideas from the private sector from the technology sector from venture capital and saying you should apply these exact ideas In your experience with those partners, what is their risk tolerance?
1: I mean, the the failure percentage for startups is huge, right? Venture capital is willing to take that loss because the reward through an exit is sufficient that it justifies the loss. But you really have to be willing to lose and allow that failure and encourage things to grow. And that's a part of it. But I actually, again, I don't think that the venture capital model is right The venture capital model requires a product to have a market and that market to be sort of willing to buy and pay for. Humanitarians are providing sort of basic social services often in cases where states or communities are unable to provide those services because of state failure, state collapse, conflict, or the state being overwhelmed by the magnitude of a specific disaster. It's not a market tested innovation. The pathway to scale isn't that someone's gonna make lots of money or make a profit. That is not to say that there isn't a role for social impact businesses. There is a huge role in some cases for certain social impact businesses that will always be better at delivery than humanitarian response. But those businesses are not going to replace humanitarian response completely. And so I, I think we, we've we sort of imported this idea that we should invest some stuff in pilots and then sort of hope that those pilots will somehow grow instead of investing that real research in the pathways to scale and understanding what they are and then looking to see how you can drive innovation based on that understanding and and so the killer app isn't an app the killer app is the ecosystem that makes that pathway to scale viable right and it's just it's a completely different mentality and that's one of my concerns about The way that we do innovation in the humanitarian sector is that it has been, and this is a fraught word and I use it advisedly, is colonized by what happens in Silicon Valley and its model.
0: As you've described some of those pieces around pathways to scale and the holy grail of you get your app into UNHCR's operating manual... Then what we tend to have, as I've seen, is a lot of hammers in searches of nails. It's a lot of, I have the app, and it's the app that's going to change the world, and my app has to be the one that makes it into this name. How do we get ourselves out of that? What do we do next?
1: There really is that need to understand the differentiated pathways to scale, to sort of be humble in the way that we engage with it and sort of recognize, I guess, the, the limitations of any given app. I actually think we also need to change the way on limiting the way that we define scale, that scale isn't about big, it's about the right size for a solution. And then the learning is about how that deploys. It is not going to be that an app goes into the UNHCR camp management manual, but rather that camp management as an approach understands how to leverage the potential benefits of digital infrastructure to achieve the goals that it wants to do, comma ethically. And, and I, I just want to come back to that word ethically because there is a huge set of challenges around digital ethics and innovation ethics in the humanitarian system, where we are not paying sufficient attention to the potential harms of the use of technology. We see more and more actors putting out data protection guidelines, but I don't think we are at the point where we are recognizing risk and managing our ethical obligations to the people we serve uh, sufficiently. And that's another huge risk with innovation is there's this willingness to break things. Playing with technology without real consent from people and real recognition of its risks and implications is really dangerous. And it is another factor that may lead to even greater failure of innovation in the humanitarian system when it comes out the harm that has been caused to people by the unthoughtful and unethical, frankly, use of technology.
0: So given all of that, what's next? Where do we go from here?
1: I don't think it's all terrible, right? I think that there is a lot of opportunity out there if we're willing to do the work. And that in part requires an approach that is humble, that sort of says we don't know this is going to be hard, but we're going to do it and we're going to chase after impact. We're going to sort of manage the transition from a system that was previously colonial and previously racist to a new system that enables communities and individuals to shape and guide their response. Technology and innovation can be a critical part of enabling that transition, right? If you harness the idea of of technology and innovation as separate entities, but linked to an ethical and real goal, you start to put constraints around it in a positive way. We can invest in the ethics and understand sort of the risks of digital disruption and constrain out negative futures for humanitarians by strengthening our ethical frameworks. How do we make sure that we're doing the right thing? How do we make sure that we're doing it for the right ends? How do we make sure that we're enabling communities and enabling individuals to get where they want to go and to shape those pathways to impact? And I think there's a huge amount of potential. If there's a reason that I have done the humanitarian work that I've done, it's because wherever you go in the world, you understand that people are people with immense potential and it's only luck and privilege and circumstance that allow us to do what we get to do in our our day-to-day lives. And if we can unlock that global potential, there's a line from a Maggie Smith poem that I love. We could make this world beautiful. So I think that that is possible. I think that we can do that. I think that innovation and technology can be a part of that if we're willing to be ethical, if we're willing to be tied to a goal that isn't necessarily self-serving, but that serves people, if we're willing to be humble and acknowledge our limits, and if we're willing actually, most of all, to start saying no to money when it doesn't make sense.
0: If you were talking to specific implementers, people who are in this system, but who do not run it, Arguably, nobody runs it. What is one thing they can do to make the world beautiful? What is one thing they can do to center participants and their needs?
1: Talk to each other. Be open. Don't try to win for yourself. Try to win for that impact. The sooner that we can let go of the idea that any one person is doing one thing, the scaling of which will save millions of lives, and the faster we get to a point that, We're all part of our system. We have a profound ethical and professional obligation to do it as best as possible. We're struggling to reach the people we need. So share our information, be open, be really candid. This podcast is a great example. Talk about our failures, talk about our challenges, and we might be able to together find ways that no individual has thought of that allow us to de-risk scale, that allow us to really become better at serving the people that we're supposed to serve and at centering their needs. The sector as a whole has to tackle racism and colonialism in its structures and in its fundamental forms if we're really going to do that. And that's a lot of hard work and there's a long, long, long way to go for that to happen, but it's possible.
0: Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks so much for listening. Stay tuned for more episodes of Failing Forward.